The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a fight to save the future of Eastern Europe and a young sorcerer comes into his own. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we bring you DJ Butler's interview with Lois McMaster Bujold. Many of our listeners will be familiar with Bujold's best-selling, genre-defying Warkosigan saga, but today she's here to talk about her Penric and Desdemona series. Previously available only as ebooks and limited edition small press hardcovers, the Penric and Desdemona stories follow a young sorcerer as he comes into his own. We've been pleased to bring these stories to a wider audience with our series of trade hardcovers, the first two of which were Penrick's Travels and Penrick's Progress. This month, we're rounding out the collection with Penrick's Labor, which is the focus of today's interview. But first, the news. The November hardcovers are in. Let's take a look. First up, we have 1637, The Transylvanian Decision by Eric Flint and Robert E. Waters. Uptimer Morris Roth and his Grand Army of the Sunrise stand at a crossroads. Military success against the Polish-Lithuanian magnates has all but guaranteed a continued push east into Ruthenian lands. There, Roth hopes to further his Anaconda project, so that tens of thousands of Jews are not slaughtered. Transylvania is thrown into political, social, and religious turmoil as battle lines are drawn. Whatever happens and whoever wins the fight, one thing is certain. The history of Eastern Europe will change radically. In fact, it already has. And next up, we have the subject of today's interview, Penrick's Labors. Three novellas of fantasy from Lois McMaster Bujold. Join young Penrick as he journeys from young lord to sorcerer and scholar in the Bastard's Order. Includes Masquerade in Lodi, The Orphans of Raspay, and The Physicians of Vilnock, plus a new introduction, outroduction, and suggested reading order by Lois McMaster Bujold. That's 1637, The Transylvanian Decision, and Penrick's Labors, out now in hardcover from Bain Books. And that's it for the news. Uh, hello, this is uh, DJ Dave Butler. Uh, I'm here with Lois McMaster Bujold to talk about her new novel, uh, Penrick's Labors. Uh, it's out now in hardcover and in all your favorite ebook formats, always DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, uh, of course. Um, Lois McMaster Bujold was born in 1949, the daughter of an engineering professor at Ohio State University, from whom she picked up her early interest in science fiction. She now lives in Minneapolis and has two grown children. She began writing with the aim of professional publication in 1982. She wrote three novels in three years. In October of 1985, all three sold to Bain Books, launching her career. 
Pujold went on to write many other books for Bain, mostly featuring her popular character Miles Naismith for Kosigan, his family, friends, and enemies. Her fantasy novels from HarperCollins' Aos includes the award include the award-winning uh, Chalian series and the Sharing Knife Tetralogy. More recently, she has been exploring the novella length with Tales of the Sorcerer Penric and his demon Desdemona and other stories. Uh, her works have been translated into over 20 languages. Ten times nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novel, Pujol has won in that category four times. In 2017, the Vorkosigan saga received the first Hugo Award for Best Series, and in 2018, her World of the Five Gods series received the second. In 2020, Bujold was named the 36th Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster by the Science Fiction Writers of America. Uh, Lois, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you for inviting me. We're, um, I should say that I actually, uh, I know your science, I know more of your science fiction. I have read, um, not the entire Vorkosigan saga, but a number. I've got a stack of them here on the floor that is it might be read. <laughs> Visualize. Yes. Well, well, yes, but one of my several to-be-read piles around the house. Um, but we're here to talk about uh, about your uh, uh, about your fantasy um, series uh, or a, well, one of your fantasy series. So uh, I want to talk uh, at sort of the uh, wider level about the setting because the Penrick stories are not the first explorations of the setting, right? Which is the 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 f the, the five g u or the world of the five gods right? five gods yeah, yeah everything is a, just sounds like a computer part you know it it does and every, everybody Ooh. thinks they have a verse these days my this verse the that verse yeah i like the world of the five gods uh better um maybe tell us a little bit about your initial explorations in uh in that setting how did you start writing in okay it goes back a long way to the turn of the millennium um I had, uh, was, had finished a civil campaign for Bain, and I wanted to try my hand at a fantasy novel uh, with an original setting. I had actually done for Bain The Spirit Ring back in the early 90s, which was my first fantasy novel. Uh, and uh, it was okay, but you know, there were things like it was set in a kind of uh, uh, alternate Italy where magic worked, you know, that kind of his cross between historical and fantasy. And I wanted to do something different this time around. Uh, so I embarked on what eventually became the Curse of Chalian. Uh, you know, new characters, new settings, uh, new background, uh, the whole nine yards. And uh, we sold that to HarperCollins and they also uh, picked up uh, in the contract for a second book, which became Paladin of Souls, which uh, won the Hugo, the Nebula and the Locus Award around 2005. Um, and that followed what had been a minor but pivotal character from the first book followed her further adventures as she developed as a character uh, and went on. And at that point, I was starting to think about this could be a series, but I don't want to be to be like structured like the Borkosigan series, uh, which was sort of one character having adventures inside a, a biographical arc. Uh, the Hornblower series was, was kind of an early example of that that structure. Um, so I thought, let's have a thematic structure with one book for each of the five gods. We've got two of them, we'll do another. Uh, and that got me into The Hallowed Hunt. Uh, and uh, then I kind of stalled out. I didn't have any ideas for the two remaining gods. And, uh, so I took a sharp right into the, uh, the uh, 
the tetralogy, the, the sharing knife, which is yet another series structure, which is one story broken up into four volumes. Uh, so it's like 1600 pages, you know, <laughs> chopped down. But it is, it is a continuous story arc, you know, complete in four volumes, plus one codicil novella that I wrote later. Uh, and that was, uh, and then I went back to Bain and did some more Borkosigan work. Uh, I did, uh, not sure what order things are coming in now, but uh, Cryoburn and uh, eventually Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen. Uh, I think uh, Diplomatic Immunity was in there somewhere. Yeah, that came in. Um, I think it came in between the two, uh, last two Chalian books. But um, so that, you know, that brought me up to, you know, the, the whatever we're calling this decade, <laughs> the, or the just previous decade, the teens, I guess, the 20 teens. Um, and I had uh, had finished Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen, and I was sort of at loose ends, and I could do anything, and I didn't, you know, I didn't quite know what. But uh, there were several things I wanted to do. I wanted to have fun writing a really powerful sorcerer, because that's not something I had done before. Um, and I wanted to try my hand at uh, writing independent uh, self-published e-novellas, or e-books, stories anyway, uh, which is also something I had not done before. I'd done reprints, whatever you call them, when they're not actually printed there in pixels. Uh, so I thought I will write a novella about a powerful sorcerer and you know and do it as an indie and see what happens. Uh, and uh, I got started on it and got to thinking about how to you know, structure this one. Um, and I find myself working my way back to Penrick's beginning uh, when he first contracted his demon uh, and uh, and became a sorcerer at the age of nineteen, and that became the story Penrick's demon. Uh, which was just a standalone at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it was the world was fraught with ideas and all kinds of unexplored corners. Um, I continued to do research reading and get more ideas, and then I went on and that's now I have written 11 Penrick titles uh, since then. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. So in, in terms of reading the Penrick stories, um, they, uh, if you wanted to read them in order, roughly the order they're written, um, I, I think is also the chronological order, right? Penrick's Demon is the first story. Oh, that's not true. Okay. Okay. That was, uh, one of the things about having it as an a la carte ebooks, or, you know, um, was that, well, that it's a la carte. You know, I could take one story from this part of the timeline and another story of that part of the timeline and write them in any order I want. And they would be out there loose and people get, you know, pick them up as they wanted. Yeah. Um, but with the Bain uh, collections, the three Bain, now coming up three Bain collections, mm -hmm. uh, we can put them in chronological order for you. Uh, mm -hmm. So it follows the character's internal chronology through the three Penrick volumes. So it, it does begin with Penrick's demon, which is sort of, which is the story of how Penrick becomes a sorcerer. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk in a few minutes about kind of how that happens. Uh, so, uh, but I, but I suppose one thing I'm hearing is that if a reader went to a bookstore uh, and uh, the the book that was available was uh, didn't happen to be Penrick's Progress, but they picked up Penrick's uh, Travels or Penrick's Labors, they should be able to start there and and uh, and and read them in any order. Is that fair? Yes, just each one is a collection of three novellas. 
Yeah. Uh, all the novellas were expected to be read, you know, separately. Uh, so uh, uh, the reader should be fine. I wrote an introduction for actually both the first and the second volumes that assured people that, uh, yes, it's okay to read these. <laughs> it's all right, you can read them. You can come back and get the rest later. Yeah. It's kind of, um, it's, it's like reading about my favorite characters in the stories in magazines when I was a young science fiction reader. Uh, yeah, there would be a Telsey story, and then I would find another one, and then I would find a back issue somewhere with, with yet another, oh boy, Telsey story. And uh, yeah, collected them as, as they came to be and kind of put them together in my head uh, as her, you know, as her biography, as it were. Um, and so this is like, this is like uh, magazine stories without the magazine. <laughs> they, uh, they are just, yeah, they're out there, you can take them in any order. Uh, if you read them in order, there will be uh, fewer spoilers because you know, if, if you read about something that happened six years later, you know at least he survived the, the adventure, the prior adventure um, and other things. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it should be okay. And, and the relationship with the, the, the Chalian books is that they're set in the same world. Correct. So you see the same five gods and you see sort of the same conventions of magic and places, but, but not necessarily a story interdependence. Uh, it does not follow the same characters from the earlier books. No. Uh, so people who, you know, who fell in love with the characters of the first book uh, were sort of taken aback when the second book was about somebody else and even more taken aback when the third book was about somebody else in another country 200 years earlier. Uh, but you know, they eventually figured it out. Uh, so it was not you know, ongoing characters. Uh, it was, but it is in the same world with these same gods. Yeah. Uh, somebody once dubbed it uh, speculative theology, because the theology of the world is, is quite important to the world building. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about the theology j just a minute, but I, I, I have another sort of, um, I guess, question. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a bit of an observation. I, I um, this, this is not Earth. Correct. But it's a setting that, in some ways lies very close to earth in ways that you have sort of knitted into even like language and names mm -hmm. so uh so for example Penrick travels around to little villages uh, a couple little villages that whose names end in the syllable beck right mm -hmm. uh chill beck and i forget the other one um <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a real English language or naming convention, right? And Beck is an old, I think it's an old Anglo-Saxon word, uh, which means uh, creek, yep. right? right? And so there are there are real towns and villages. Yeah. Um, or similarly, and I found this very delightful, um, you know, Penrick travels, as, as the title suggests, um, but in the beginning, his his adventures are in and around the, the wild, um, which is which is a real place, uh, which is there, there there is there is such a it's 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 the the old English word. For, the name. Uh, yeah, it's the old English name for woods. Yeah, um, but in this case, it's the name of a country which is unrelated to England. Well, well no, that's right. But it, but actually, it's a specific. There's a specific forest. It's the forest between the North and the South Downs and South. Mm -hmm. I, I know this because I lived on the edge of it for, okay. for four years. Yeah. Um, so so um, so these places there it, it's 
So as, as you read the stories, right, it's not that it's set in England or that it's set in Venice or that it's set in another, but it's, the, it's set in places that are very uh, reminiscent of, that, that feel like, oh, this sort of feels like I'm in England, right? Mm -hmm. this, this kind of feels like I'm now on the continent somewhere. Um, I mean, this is clearly deliberate. So I guess my question is, tell me, tell me what you're, you know, what you're going for here. Tell me, tell me why you, why you wrote this this way. Okay. Well, there's, there's the whole thing about names, which we'll come back to, but uh, sort of the, the way I use history and the real world for inspiration for this is not because I want to write an historical novel or because I want to write a historical critique. It's I use history and uh, our world as the way that the way an artist uses reference photos uh, to get the proportions right and and get you know get a quick mock-up so that everything fits together without having to spend you know as much time as Tolkien spent on it uh, to put it together. And the other thing about setting up these resonances is I'm writing at novella length. And that means I don't have a lot of space for world building. Uh, you know, I, I don't have 1,600 words for this, you know, for a Penrick novella to give a sense of place, uh, a sense of history, a sense of uh, the surround. Uh, so using these resonances allows me to call up from the reader things that they know that is just off, you know, and yet they'll bring out from their own memories and information, these associations that fill in the blanks that I've left. Uh, so it works as a kind of play with the reader to make them do more work. <laughs> so that's, yeah. uh, that's what's going on with the world building. Um, it's, uh, and plus it's, you know, because I'm pulling a lot of ideas from historical in inspiration, but I don't want to be tied to history. It allows me to, that elbow room to play uh, with these uh, concepts and ideas. So that's that's what's what's happening there. Now yeah. with the, with the names, na making up names is a burden for me. Uh, but I've I've discovered a trick. Uh, this is sort of like telling you how sausages are made. But uh, to get names in an area that all sound like they come from the same language, mm. um, is you take your area of the map, chop up all the place names into syllables and recombine them. Uh, so they're all coming out of one language, but they're not that language. Uh, yeah. So that the place names in the wheeled will sound different from the place names in Adria, which will sound different again from the place names in Sidonia, uh, because they're all from different parts of the map. Now, in the case of something like Spain, there's already six languages on the map <laughs> that they've acquired over the years. So it's, it's like doubly remixed, uh, but, uh, but it gives a, a way to give a sense of unity uh, to, uh, to all these hundreds of made up names. Yeah. And once again, it draws on that subliminal sense of familiarity to make the reader uh, feel like they kind of know what's going on. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's fantastic. Is there a map of the world of five gods? By the way, I, I look for one yeah, only. Uh, well, there's a partial one. Um, uh, I'm not sure if we got it into the Bane volumes, but uh, there's one of the kind of the the area around um, 
the adventures. Uh, actually, that we made it up that map for the uh, for the pirate story for uh, the orphans of Rasp. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there's also a map online that the fans made. Uh, if you go to the Borkosigan wiki or the Chaldean wiki somewhere, you'll find it. Uh, it's okay. it's more extensive and less canonical because I reserve the right to shift geography wherever I need it for the story. Of course, yeah. Um, okay, fantastic. I, I love the I love the sort of thoughtfulness about names. That's very interesting. Um, so okay, so speculative theologies, the five gods. Uh, tell us about, and this has everything to do with Penric, right? I mean, his story is is deeply tied to specifically all of the stories are yeah. yeah so so tell us about the five gods then okay uh, they started back in the curse of chalian when you know i was writing this story about casserole and i needed you know i needed a background religion um and that you know my thinking about them has grown over the course of 20 years of writing this sure. um but uh but they are very naturalistic gods. Yeah, there's five: their mother, father, uh, daughter, and son, and then the bastard, uh, the fifth god. So the four gods are the gods of the four seasons, you know, and the four fingers of the hand, and they, you know, they're very, uh, very organic that way. Uh, and the bastard is the god of everything else, you know, all the bits that don't fit, uh, and he touches every other finger, you know. Um, and uh, and so he's he's the trickster god, uh, trickster figure. Uh, the others all have their you know their more expected you know expected from the main seasons and whatnot. Uh, the father is the father of winter. He's the god of justice, of uh, male fertility, of uh, winter, of course. Um, um, older men. Um, the daughter of spring is the daughter of girls and young women, um, virgins and uh, early childhood education, as it turns out. Uh, the mother of summer is your basic mother goddess, but she's also the patroness of medicine, um, and female fertility. Uh, and the son of autumn is the, uh, uh, the god for the dudes, you know. If, if your last words are here, here lads, hold my ale and watch this, you're going to the sun. Um, momentarily. Uh, so, and also autumn and the harvest, hunt, comradeship, and thus war. Um, so he's, he's involved in all that kind of autumn tune things. And then, and then the bastard floats in all seasons. Um, so they are conceived by humans as being a kind of holy family, but their actual reality is something very different. They are not they are not like the Greek gods. They are not humans writ large. They are genuinely not human. They, I see them as being evolved from the world. You know, the substance of the world, the life of the world, uh, has become the gods over the over evolutionary time. Uh, there is in um, Paladin of Souls a sermon by a character named. Uh, Divine Cabin, which has kind of the origin story of, of the gods and of the bastard. Uh, so there's a little bit of that in there. I should probably put in more mythology as I go along. Um, but uh, but we, we had the first, we had the father, the mother, then we had the, the son and the daughter, and then the bastard came along later. And 
they are absorbent gods. Basically, they absorb all the life and death of the world. And so when you die and go to the gods, you genuinely join the god. You become you know, part of the godhead, uh, which is a little bit alarming. Hang on. Do you keep your identity or not? You know, it's really unclear. Uh, if you have 100 years, you know, even if you keep your identity immediately after death, if you have 100 years on Earth and 10,000 years as part of this other existence, you know, which is going to loom larger in your character. So, uh, so it gets tricky. That's so, interesting. Uh, so that that means kind of the black, yeah. The, uh, the characters of my world don't think of it in the terms I think of it. Uh, they think of it differently. But uh, that's my world building uh, take yeah. on Yeah. That's interesting. That question about retaining your personality kind of, kind of is mirrored in the chaos demons um, that uh, Penric, uh, the demon singular, right, that, that gives Penric his, that make him a sorcerer, give him power. Um, so, so there is a heresy, right? What's it called? The 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 quadripartite heresy? heresy. Yeah, the quadrant heresy is you know, If you've got a religion, you're going to have heresies and people with other opinions. Uh, the Quadrines think that there are only four gods, that the fifth god is a demon, not a god. They yeah. don't deny his existence. They deny his uh, divinity. divinity yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's set up. So they set up. One of the things I set up this five-point theology to do is to resist dualism, mm. which I think is usually a mistake. Uh, it's a mistake that a whole bunch of people like a whole lot. Uh, but the world is always more complex than that. Um, so basically, uh, the Quadrine Heresy reinvents dualism and tries to make things black and white and simple again when it's not. Yeah, by by making one of them into a demon, so it's four versus one. It's it's a yeah, bit four versus one. Like we know we we will be on the good side and we'll know we're okay. None right. of this ambiguity and moral preyness. <laughs> right, right. Uh, interesting. <clears throat> okay, so the bastard. So he's the trickster god. He's he's the god of ribald poetry. Uh, and uh, and he has this association um, with these kind of chaos demons, right? And it's the chaos demons that make a sorcerer. So so what what are these demons like, and 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 how does a how does a chaos demon give a human power? Yeah, how does how does this work? Yeah, in the world of Chalian, the gods in general have no power in the physical world. They can only reach people's thoughts. They can only get things done in the world by reaching people and getting people to do it. Yeah. The, the line on that is, the gods have no hands but ours. Um, the demon, uh, the bastard is as usual, kind of the thumb on the scale. He's, you know, gets around us a little bit. Uh, his chaos demons are released into the world. They're little blobs of chaos. Of, uh, they call them elementals when they first appear. And they are taken up by animals or humans or whatever they can find, because nothing of spirit can exist in the world of matter without a creature of matter to support it. Uh, so, uh, so if they fail to find a, uh, a host immediately, they would evaporate uh, back into chaos. And as they join a host, host they learn, they imprint, uh, they become uh, what the person or the animal is. When the person and the animal dies, they can jump to another and sort of slowly start building up personality uh, and knowledge over time. So every demon is different because every demon has a different history. Um, 
they are neither good nor evil to start as an elemental. They are blanks. Uh, so everything that is good or evil about a demon, they pick up from their human. Yeah, it is all learned behavior. Um, and so a demon uh, who gets a string of good people can become a good and powerful force, uh, become you know, brought into the temple and used for uh, all kinds of constructive things. Uh, and a demon who gets spoiled by bad riders, um, yeah, you know, becomes dangerous and, and has to be eliminated one way or another. So uh, upon that, you know, various things are. So demons have certain physical powers. They can do magic. Uh, but because this world obeys the laws of thermodynamics, every time they do magic that creates more order, they have to shed a larger amount of disorder. Um, although if they do magic that just creates disorder, it is not as costly. So one of the things you have to learn as a sorcerer is how to manage this flow of chaos and order uh, so that you don't become you know, uh, exploded like a sausage um, or otherwise you know, uh, heat, you know, overheat or uh, uh, other issues. It's, it's a, it becomes very complex and is, is played out in the stories. And you can, as a reader, you kind of learn about it incident by incident, or item by item. So it's, uh, and there's sort of a perpetual moral kind of dimension to it, right? Because essentially it's easy for Penrick, and he, he names his demon Desdemona. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, there's sort of this question like, like the demon is an elemental force, right? Does it is it actually does it actually have a personality? Is it just the residue of the twelve previous, right? right. But he he names his demon Desdemona, and and Desdemona and he with Desdemona's power in him are very good at destroying things, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's very good at, you know, uh, evil, right? Or that that's the only route because you could destroy a tumor. Uh, or lice. There are funny yeah. little passages where you know all the dead bones. Kidney stones yeah. is one of the things they destroy. Kidneys. Oh, that's good. Right. Uh, there's all kinds of ways destruction can be used for good, and part of the study of sorcery is to figure out you know how to use destruction creatively, uh, well in in ways that aid people, and then uh, the next level of magic up is how to use magic that is. Uh, Puts things together, um, uphill. creative, uphill magic, um, and then how to shed the excess chaos in ways that are safe for everyone around you and yourself. There's an early scene. So this is a setting in which there are um, we're like right on the verge of the printing press. So that there there are, some books are printed and some are not. There's still some hand copying. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a great sequence uh, early on where Penrick, uh, uh, let's see, I think he he uh, he hand copies out a page, and then he at the same time uses Desdemona's power to create a printing block of that page, which is adding order, and also destroy the thing he just made, mm -hmm. which is which is the counterbalancing action. Yeah. So so it's so it doesn't cost him too much, or so it's a permissible. Yeah. So he's able to produce this printing block, um, which then can be taken away and used as an ordinary printing block. Right. Yep. Non-magical people, uh, for like much less cost than carving it out, you know, by hand. Uh, the way uh, 
some cultures did. Uh, yeah. Early printing in China was like from hand carved pipes. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So, okay, so 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 let's talk a little about the first story, okay? I mean, the, the Penrick's demon. So who who is who is Penrick? Like before he before he gets a demon, who mm -hmm. is this guy? What, what what does his life look like? Where's he going? Okay, well, Penrick is, is a feckless young man. Well, he's not actually very feckless. He's pretty conscientious. Uh, but he is a young man who grew up the seventh and youngest in the family of a minor country lord, uh, baron in basically uh, Five Gods Universe Switzerland. Uh, so that he's a backcountry kid. Um, yep. And at age 19, uh, he is on his way to be betrothed. Um, he, needs, you know, he needs to make a wealthy marriage because his family is not doing all that great. His middle brother had gone off to be a mercenary and promptly got killed. Uh, so there was no, you know, no, nothing coming in from there. Uh, the elder brother inherited the, uh, the crumbling, well, semi-crumbling estate, you know, and, uh, was going to be the, the baron uh, after their father. Uh, so he was supposed to marry the daughter of a wealthy cheese merchant, which he was okay with. You know, it wasn't exactly the life he wanted. He wanted to go to university, not because he had any particularly scholarly ambition, but because he wanted to get out of this little village. Um, but, but he was going to have to give that up. And on the road, this is not much of a spoiler because this all happens in the first scene of the first story. Um, he comes across a moment where an elderly woman uh, traveling with a party has fallen from her horse and apparently very ill. He stops to help. Um, she dies and she turns out to have been a temple sorceress and her demon, uh, as demons do when their uh, mount dies, jumps to Penrick as the new mount, as the new uh, person. The, um, the metaphor, the easy metaphor that is used to describe this is uh, rider and ridden, ridden uh, the, uh, and it can switch back and forth depending on who's in charge, whether the demon in this is ascended, whether the human is running and driving the car. Um, it's one of the dangers of uh, sorcery is that your demon can come ascend, become ascendant and kind of run off with your body and take possession. But yeah. once if you have possession of the demon and there's some cooperation going, you get use of these powers and the direction of these powers. So Penrick was not expecting this. Uh, it was nowhere in his you know, ideas for what, what he would be doing. Uh, so he woke up you know, with the demon on board and then proceeded to have to learn how to manage it um, and uh, got sent off to, to learn how. And uh, this is the story of Penrick's demon. Yeah. So he, he um... Yeah, he's he's not a bad guy, right? I mean, he's he's a he's a he's a basically good kid. He, in fact, Rukia, she's dying. Uh, I don't know if it's Rukia or if it's the demon. Basically, asking his permission, right? And he doesn't know yeah. what he's consent consenting to, but he says he says, you know, yes, I'm here to help. Whatever, whatever you need. <laughs> whatever you need. <laughs> there he is saddled with that. So. Um, yeah, so his his you know his family like uh, my, minor minor lord so landed but not rich you know because his skills are he's he can hunt uh, and he can climb you know because he's they had land but he had to go shoot sheep to eat uh, so uh, 
And so, and he, so yeah, the first story is about him, the sort of temple deciding, what do we do with this guy? Has this demon become ascendant? Do we need to destroy it? Uh, you know, what do we do to him? Um, but uh, so, okay. So I like the metaphor, by the way, the, the writing, this is like another great example of how, um, it's, it's another great example of a, of, a, of a real earth resonance, right? Because this is, it's very close to the language of like Vodun, people talking about being a horse for the mysteres, for the Loa, uh, when they, you know, in, in close connection with, um, or maybe you might say possessed by, uh, you know, by, by one of the powers, right? So this is, is that language, um, or close to it. Um, so, um, okay, so that's, so that's, that's a lot of fun, uh, now, but it's not the only kind of magic, uh, uh, in the, the world of the five gods. Um, so another example of magic you've got is shamanism. So, uh, and here again, you're, you're very close to real world practices in a lot of ways here. So, uh, so, so tell me about the shamans of, uh, of the world of five gods. What is a shaman? There's a second sort of magic besides the chaos demon. Uh, and this was actually first developed for the novel, The Hallowed Hunt, mm. uh, when I worked out you know, the rules of how this would work and, and uh, all the procedures. But it is a kind of building up of a spirit uh, through animal sacrifice. Uh, and this goes back to the old weald, which was like old Saxon Germany tribal thing uh, inspired by. Um, you know, back, back when they were the, the the forest tribes, you know, they developed all these techniques. Um, and uh, the idea is you sacrifice an animal into another animal, you know, usually the same sex and species, and it gets an enhanced soul or spirit. Uh, and then you sacrifice it into another and into another and into another. And if you get it up high enough, you get one that if you sacrifice it into a human, the human has magical powers. Yeah. That's the other way you can become uh, a magician in this world uh, is to become to receive a great beast and become a shaman. Uh, there's a whole culture around that. That's not the only practice. Uh, there's uh, spirit warriors that had animal spirits sacrificed in them into them so they would be more fierce. Uh, there's a whole story backstory about uh, a war between the forest tribes and Darthaka, which was kind of like. Five Gods Universe France, if you like. Um, and uh, it's actually somewhat inspired by uh, Emperor, the stories of Emperor Charlemagne fights with uh, across the border there. Um, but that's, that's deep backstory. It doesn't immediately impinge on Penric. But it means there's this whole culture. Um, the shamanism was suppressed for a period after Adar's, great Adar's conquests. Um, Darthican conquest, and then you know, hundreds of years later, you know, it fell apart. The country became independent again, uh, and the story of the Hallowed Hunt is a, sort of the story of how about how shamanism was rediscovered and brought in as a uh, an allowed thing again by the by the temple. Uh, so when we fast forward to Penric's time, which is about 150 about 150 years after the Hallowed Hunt. Uh, shamanism has been developed. Uh, they have royal shamans 
at the, the capital of the Weald in East Home. And, uh, and they're trying to like recover uh, you know, the old, old learning and learn new things. And so the second story in Penrick's Progress, that first collection, uh, is about how Penrick meets a shaman and has to solve his problems, which he's gotten into very deeply. <laughs> so it's shamanism and, and uh, chaos sorcery. Yeah. Compare and contrast. That's what's going on in that story. Yeah. And the, the third story in that volume picks up what makes you think it's going to go in the same direction, except that it doesn't. It picks up the characters developed in the second story. Gives yeah. them another adventure. Yeah. There's a, yeah. So one of Pendrick's comrades. So he, he has this, one of these shamans is a comrade for a time. And this is in, this is in uh, Pendrick's Progress, the first volume. But another is, uh, is he called an inquirer? Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a police detective. It's yeah, a, it's a, like, an, like an inquisitor, not quite, right? Associated with the father and that idea of justice. Yep, so that's, you know, that's, so that's the guy he's working for and is loyal to because of his uh, career, because of his vocation, really. Yeah. Uh, so he's a, he was a fun character to develop. But then, of course, I get to the next book and I go in a completely different direction, um, which is to take Penrick to Sidonia, which actually got mentioned in the first story when he was reading the books in the library. I think he suddenly found he could read Sidonian. Mm -hmm. He was trying to imagine uh, being in this distant and fabulous country. Uh, so uh, the, the next three adventures in, in Penrick's travels take him to Sidonia and we get a little tour as he goes around. Um, but that brings us to Penrick's labors. Uh, yeah, very good. Which so, is uh, we're supposed to be talking about. Ostensibly, <laughs> we're talking about that one. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I want to hear about those stories. But, but, like, as a comment or maybe a question, it seems to me that the genre of the stories sometimes is it's a little genre flexible, right? Like that mm -hmm. that story, uh, the third story in Penrick's progress is something close to a police procedural. It's a murder mystery, exactly. which has this interesting twist tied into the whole sorcery and demons mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and uh, so, I, so I guess I'm curious, like, like, how do you think about genre? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you consciously write stories in different genres with Penrick here, or is it just a matter of- well, I, I developed this back when I was writing the Borkoskigan series. Uh, I regard genres as a buffet table, and I can put whatever I want. Yeah, um, from the smorgasbord. Yeah, why limit yourself to just one? Um, because you know the characters are in a whole world. They have to. Yeah, that world has to contain every possible kind of story. So there's there's no reason to limit the series, uh, unless unless you're following a particular line. Yeah, it depends on series structure. So this was the thing about series structure that I learned from the Vorkosigan. Uh, series that I brought to the Penrick stories that you're not, you know, there is no limit. You can do anything you want that the, that the character will allow. Uh, some characters cannot carry certain stories. It's just not within their range. But if you have a character with a, with a range like Miles and like Penrick, they can do several different kinds of stories and not violate their character. Um, but uh, back in the Curse of Chalian, uh, and when I wrote Palette of Souls, I needed a different character to explore different aspects uh, in the second book, and again in the third. Uh, 
So, uh, so where were we? We were uh, we were discussing. Oh, I love to hear. Uh, actually, one last one last. Well, I don't know. Comment. One of the reasons I love your inclusion of shamanism again, this kind of real world resonance. Um, you know, this this is this is one of the great, really widespread sort of spiritual very old gifts of you know humankind one of our old inheritances on earth and if you read you know anthropology or magical studies or religious studies you all the time run across you know this uh, this complex of ideas so shamanism per se is altaic it's from you know central asia but all the time you'll say well you know here are these complex of ideas among you know the orphics or among the you know Algonquins that 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 are shamanistic, right? And and the base, the core idea is somebody who discorporates from their own body and can enter a new realm. Um, and uh, and classically, you know, your ability to act in that realm makes you a, a healer and, and otherwise kind of a magical person. Um, and classically, you have a kind of a second soul, right? Uh, which which is often an animal form and so you know you kind of you kind of took this sort of little germanic feeling like you said you know the sort of animal sacrifice as the as the mechanism for creating the second soul of these shamans um but it's very but otherwise it's very resonant with with real world uh you know real world stuff so it, 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 it's wonderful it feels very real to me as i'm yeah that's on purpose yeah it's you to do the work um so yeah, uh, Penrick's labors in the next three uh, Penrick stories, and we, we were talking about uh, different genres, and I've got actually three different genres in that book. Uh, the first story, um, which was actually written later, uh, because once again, I'm not, you know, I'm not stuck on the timeline. I can move around if I can manage. Um, the, uh, the first story is set in, during his year in Adria, uh, between the, so it actually falls between Penrick's progress and uh, Penrick's uh, travels. So that's story, and then we have two stories that follow after uh, all the stories in Penrick's travels. But uh, to push them together, um, so the first one is an adventure in basically uh, Penrick's world's Venice. Uh, I had a lot of fun using all my old Venice research in that one. Uh, and it is, what did I call it? Uh, it is a theological mystery. It is not a murder mystery, uh, but uh, he comes across a situation that, you know, that requires his magical, it, it is his magical duty. A, a young man is fished up from the sea who has been possessed by a spoiled demon. And uh, Penrick's job is to get this kid and take him before the saint whose job it is to remove bad demons. Uh, he's run off, uh, and uh, so the, the adventure is you know, tracking him down and trying to get this whole problem solved. And uh, the saint of Lodi turns out to be a trip. She was an amazing character. Uh, quite surprised me. I had no idea who she was when I started. I knew he was going to go find a saint. And when we arrived, it was this 18-year-old girl, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, uh, who had her own ideas about how the story should go, kind of took charge. Uh, the second story, The Orphans of Brass Bay, jumps forward to uh, Penrick's sojourn in uh, the Duchy of Orbis, which was sort of next door to the, the Empire of Sidonia. Um, and uh, he's actually on a ship coming back from a 
diplomatic mission and is captured by pirates. Uh, so I got to play with what I think about pirates. Uh, and he finds himself, you know, rescuing him, himself would have been fairly easy, but he finds himself uh, sort of in charge of two orphan girls who are also part of the pirates catch. And uh, so escaping with them turns out to be a lot more difficult. And then the third story, uh, The Physicians of Vilnock, is the one I started at the end of 2019. And it is a story about Penrick dealing with a plague because he is also a physician sorcerer, uh, which comes up variously in, in the other sorcerers, uh, in the other stories. And so that story focused in, on those issues. Uh, what should I say about that? Um, That's quite some timing. Yeah, the timing was really unfortunate. You know? But I wasn't pulling up. You know, people think it was inspired by the COVID pandemic. It had nothing to do with the COVID pandemic pandemic, which is nothing new. Uh, you know, we've had pandemics and diseases and whatnot through history, uh, probably you know, all of which fed into you know, the background um, that went into this story of uh, Henrik uh, at home in Vilnock suddenly having to deal with a, a uh, desperately threatening disease that was new. Uh, but uh, probably the, uh, the hysterical person who was most inspired uh, that story is Walter Reed, mm. whom I read a kid's biography about back in fifth grade, which makes it like 60 years ago, <laughs> that made a huge impression on me evidently because, um, because I was thinking about Walter Reed and his, you know, his uh, discovering the true cause of yellow fever uh, in his tropical medicine research back, back when, which is why they named the army hospital after him. Um, so yeah, so that the idea of being able to explore medical research at a time when it all hadn't been invented yet uh, was part of what was going on uh, with uh, with that story. That kind of kind of raises an interesting point, and I, I maybe worth making. Um, you know, we talk about Penrick's magics being destructive. Um, from the beginning, right? He, he, and he, as you say, he hadn't wanted to go to university necessarily to be a scholar, but he already sort of thought of himself as a person who was, you know, uh, a thinker uh, and uh, sort of the combination of the demon's capabilities. Hey, suddenly I speak and read new languages. Uh, <laughs> That's authorial wish fulfillment there. Yeah. Oh, I hear Languages. Um, but also sudden, suddenly becoming basically sort of a person with access to temples and libraries mm -hmm. and also having this sudden like uh, ontological change, right? Like suddenly he's this sort of, he has this thing, um, really makes him a, he, he's, a, he's a thinking hero, right? Like he, 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 he researches and, and he, uh, yes, his magic is, to light things on fire and uh, you know cause <laughs> them to burn. yeah uh uh but but the stories don't they don't usually win they don't end in a climax because penrick causes the bad guy to explode right that's not the nature of the stories yes actually actually uh, killing with this magic is forbidden um and by the rules of the magic um he would lose his demon yeah if uh if he killed with with directly with his magic now if he picked up his bow and shot somebody he'd in no worse case than anyone else who did the same deed, but uh, but it means that he has to take care with his magic. That, you know, he does not harm. So he's kind of the antithesis of the 
the military hero, which I had explored with Miles. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a man who cannot kill um, or will not kill. Uh, he has to find other ways to solve problems, other kinds of problems. Um, so uh, so um, that's been a lot of fun uh, to kind of have the, the anti-Bibles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the, so the stories have have a like a riddle or it has to be unraveled or right a, 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 there's a there's gotta a give the hero somebody something to do for a hundred pages yeah right yeah uh fantastic okay so this is this is the third collection each of these is three novellas um the uh there there are two other stories penrick stories outside the the bain published sequence right because you were telling us earlier that the yeah, uh, there's two more that follow. Um, the Assassins of Thassalon, which started out to be a novella but grew into a novel, and uh, Knot of Shadows, which is another sort of theological, shorter theological mystery that takes place uh, back in Vilnock. Yeah, so. and a reader could just find those on Amazon if they wanted, presumably? Yeah, yeah they're available. They're all available as uh, ebooks. Amazon, they're on Amazon, uh, Nook, uh, iTunes, iBooks or Apple Books or whatever they're calling it these days, and uh, we've just gotten on Kobo. So they're out there. Yeah. So, uh, do you have plans to write more Penrick stories? Like, what co what causes you to say, "Ah, it's time to write another Penrick story"? Is it a kind of idea that hits you? Yeah, there's there's idea that ideas have a certain I don't know density, idea density that says this is a story that you know I don't know what it's going to be, but it feels like it. Yeah, you know, it could unfold into something that's kind of in the solar plexus. And those come along once in a while. Um, but I have to, I kind of have to prime the pump a little bit, which I haven't been doing much lately of. Um, I have to be a, li a little bit more focused than I've been. But yeah, the, the ideas come and then, you know, they become a story and I get started on them and they get difficult, but I can't leave them alone because I can't waste the however many you know, words I've written so far. And I find my way to the end of it. What do you do to prime the pump? That's a provocative phrase. Is that? Well, it's mostly taking in the right kind of information mm -hmm. um, and other stimulus, uh, reading, of course, or you know, learning learning new things. I guess uh, learning new things about history, uh, being reminded of old things I knew. Mm -hmm. uh, so a, a story never starts with one idea. It always starts with two or three or six that suddenly come together and create this critical mass um, so uh, so it's, it's having you know one idea can lie in the in the compost heap of your memory for years and you know be completely useless and then some other thing will come in and pull it out and you know, suddenly you, you have a you have a connection and you have sparks yeah story i love that so do you read a lot of nonfiction? then you have a big nonfiction library uh, I do. Uh, what's behind me is kind of the remains of my nonfiction library. Uh, I haven't been reading so much lately. I have eye issues. Uh, mm. Macular pucker. You can look it up on, on uh, Wikipedia. Mm. But uh, so I've been, yeah, I've been mostly reading on my tablet. Is there anything like the print really big? Um, but I've been watching, uh, the other thing I've been doing the last few years, I've been watching anime for decades. But I have lately fallen into watching live action Asian media, which is newly accessible with all the streaming sites and yeah, sure. finding all that. And uh, my, my take on that is it's like discovering science fiction at the age of 12. I don't 
understand it all, but it's really cool and I want to see more. <laughs> that same feeling, you know, golden age of science fiction is 12. You know, that line, I'm sure. Yeah. Let's, uh, moment of first having my, golden age my second adolescence <laughs> of anime or of live action Asian uh, you know. strange things I don't understand but yeah fun so uh, so you don't have any other Penrick stories planned right now though we'll we'll see a moment um, yeah it, uh, I'm semi retired uh, which means I write what I want to uh, and when I don't I go do something else um, which is I will be, uh, Henrik's Labors is coming out practically on my birthday. I will be 73 next month. I figure I can be semi-retired if I want. Happy birthday. That seems fair. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very good birthday present from Bain. So do you, are there other projects that you are working on that you want to talk about or any other books that are coming out maybe from other publishers? Uh, I have been a complete slacker this year. I did do a private project or a personal project, not private. Um, I had handed, come down through the family, a set of documents from the Civil War. There were two diaries, and it turned out my brother had a memoir also from the same family, the Gerald family of New Hampshire, which is my mother's family tree. And back in the early 70s, I remember my mother transcribing from these little handwritten diaries, uh, and she made a type script. Um, so, and it looked like this. Wow, yeah. And uh, and they made copies, and you know one of the copies came to me, so that we had these couple of you know couple of copies of these Civil War. Uh, there's a diary of a young man who was a medic on the East Fort, uh, which was a Union ironclad ram in the Red River campaign. The diary for the same year of his mother back in New Hampshire, and then a memoir written later by his older brother, who was my great great grandfather. Um, that kind of tied it all together. And I'd had the two diaries, but I hadn't had the memoir until just recently. Uh, I'd been, uh, there's a whole thing about it on my blog at Goodreads about uh, uh, WikiTree inviting me to be a guest for you know, genealogy stuff. Where we... So anyway, uh, oh, here's a, here's a picture of Beastport. That's very cool. And that's neat that the WikiTree... So they asked you for like, give me your four grandparents' names and birth dates, and we'll see what yeah, we can do. Yeah, and then we will we will turn our group loose and sort of crowdsource your genealogy. It's just a thing, and for one week, it's like a cross between time team, time team, and, and a genealogy club. Yeah, uh, and that was a lot of fun for them and for me. And uh, as I say, there's more about it on my blog if anyone is interested. But it reminded me of this thing that had been sitting on my shelf for decades, and I pulled it out and got to looking at it and say. I could make this into an ebook. I know how to make an ebook, um, and uh, so I did. And that is now up uh, on Amazon only. Uh, it's titled "The Gerald Family of New Hampshire in the Civil War: Two Diaries and a Memoir," which is just what it says on the tin. Uh, and uh, so people can go see see this stuff. It's fascinating to read the diaries because they're so raw. They're unedited. They're you know not you know not assumed to be a an audience yeah they're not made into a narrative uh, but they build they accumulate as you read and you know it's, it's very befuddling at first because you don't know any of the references but you know slowly it it fills in and you get a sense of these people's lives the world that they lived in which is in some ways very like ours uh, martin 
the uh, kid on the riverboat talks about reading the autocrat at the breakfast table, which is a book I could pull off the shelf anywhere. And we're still reading it. And then he talks about things that are totally alien to our world. Yeah. So, so it was fun. Very cool. What a what a what a terrific project. Um, okay, is there anything else we haven't talked about that you wanna you wanna let Bain readers know about or uh, want to discuss? I think we've uh, I think we've pretty much filled an hour here. Uh, and maybe a little over. No, we're good. We're <laughs> Short good. Short long answers. I'm one of those people too. Um, so I think this, you know, Penrick's Labors will be out in uh, a very short time, um, yeah. and uh, people should go enjoy it. Yep. In fact, it should be out by the time this interview is posted, or if not, shortly <laughs> after. November first is the is the release date. Um, fantastic. Well, once again, the book is Penrick's Labors, uh, out from Bain in hardcover and ebook. Uh, Lois Pujol, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's fun. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Dinner that night was a festive occasion. Irena Moreau had cooked her son's favorite meal, center-fired wild ballas, and the conversation was light and frequently punctuated by laughter. The warmth and love seemed to Johnny to fill the room, surrounding the five of them with an invisible defense perimeter. For the first time since leaving Asgard, he felt truly safe, and tensions he'd forgotten he even had began to drain slowly from his muscles. It took most of the meal for the others to bring Johnny up to date on the doings of Cedar Lake's people, so it wasn't until Irena brought out the cave that conversation turned to Johnny's plans. I'm not really sure, Johnny confessed, holding his mug of cave with both hands, letting the heat soak into his palms. I suppose I could go back to school and finally pick up that computer tech certificate, but that would take another year, and I'm not crazy about being a student again. Not now, anyway. Across the table, Jamie sipped cautiously at his mug. If you went to work, what sort of job would you like? he asked. Well, I'd thought of coming back to the shop with Dadder, but you seem to be pretty well settled in there. Jamie darted a glance at his father. Heck, Johnny, there's enough work in town for three of us, right, Dadder? Sure, Pierce replied with only the barest hesitation. Thanks, Johnny said, but it sounds like you're really too low on equipment for me to be very useful. And my thought is that maybe I could work somewhere on my own for a few months until we can afford to outfit the shop for three workers. Then, if there's enough business around, I could come and work for you. Pierce nodded. That sounds really good, Johnny. I think that's the best way to do it. So back to the original question, Jamie said. What kind of job are you going to get? Johnny held his mug to his lips for a moment, savoring the rich minty aroma. 
Army cave had a fair taste and plenty of stimulant, but was completely devoid of the fragrance that made a good scent drink so enjoyable. I've learned a lot about civil engineering in the past three years, especially in the uses of explosives and sonic cutting tools. I figure I'll try one of the road construction or mining companies you were telling me about that are working south of town. Can't hurt to try, Pierce shrugged. Going to take a few days off first? Nope. I'll head out there tomorrow morning. I figured I'd drive around town for a while this evening, though, get reacquainted with the area. Can I help with the dishes before I go? Don't be silly, Reyna smiled at him. Relax and enjoy yourself. Tonight, that is, Jamie amended. Tomorrow you'll be put out in the salt mines with the rest of the new slaves. Johnny leveled a finger at him. Beware the darkness of the night, he said with mock seriousness. There just may be a pillow out there with your name on it. He turned back to his parents. Okay if I take off, then? Anything you need in town? I just shopped today, Irena told him. Go ahead, son, Pierce said. I'll be back before it gets too late. Johnny downed the last of his cave and stood up. Great dinner, Mommer. Thanks a lot. He left the room and headed toward the front door. To his mild surprise, Jamie tagged along. You coming with me? Johnny asked. Just to the car, Jamie said. He was silent until they were outside the house. I wanted to clue you in on a couple of things before you left, he said as they set off across the lawn. Okay, shoot. Number one, I think you ought to be careful about pointing your finger at people, like you did at me a few minutes ago, especially when you're looking angry or even just serious. Johnny blinked. Hey, I didn't mean anything by that. I was just kidding around. I know that, and it didn't bother me. Someone who doesn't know you as well might have dived under the table. I don't get it. Why? Jamie shrugged, but met his brother's eyes. They're a little afraid of you, he said bluntly. Everybody followed the war news pretty closely out here. They all know what cobras can do. Johnny grimaced. It was beginning to sound like a repeat of that last awkward conversation with Alona Linder, and he didn't like the implications. What we could do, he told Jamie, perhaps a bit more sharply than necessary. Most of my armament's gone, and even if it wasn't, I sure wouldn't use it on anyone. I'm sick of fighting. I know, but they won't know that, not at first. I'm not just guessing here, Johnny. I've talked to a lot of kids since the war ended, and they're pretty nervous about seeing you again. You'd be surprised how many of them are scared that you'll remember some old high school grudge and come by to settle accounts. Oh, come on, Jamie, that's ridiculous. That's what I tell the ones that ask me about it, but they don't seem convinced. And it looks like some of their parents have picked up on the attitude, too, and... Heck, you know how news travels around here. I think you're going to have to bend over backwards for a while. Be as harmless as a dove with blunted toenails. Prove to them they don't have to be afraid of you. Johnny snorted. The whole thing is silly, but okay. I'll be a good little boy. Great. Jamie hesitated. Now for number two, I guess. Were you planning to stop by and see Elise Karn tonight? That thought had crossed my mind. Johnny frowned, trying to read his brother's expression. Why? Has she moved? No, she's still living out on Blakely Street. But you might want to call before you go over there, to make sure she isn't busy. Johnny felt his eyes narrow slightly. What are you getting at? she living with someone? Oh, no, it hasn't gone that far, Jamie said quickly. But she's been seeing Don Etheridge a lot lately, and, well, he's been calling her his girlfriend. 
Johnny pursed his lips, staring past Jamie at the familiar landscape beyond the Moro property. He could hardly blame Elise for finding someone new in his absence. They hadn't exactly been the talk of Cedar Lake when he left, and three years would have been a pretty long wait even if they had been more serious about each other. And yet, along with his family, Elise had been one of his psychological anchors when things on Adirondack had gotten particularly bad, a focal point for thoughts and memories involving something besides blood and death. Just having her around was bound to help in his readjustment to civilian life, and besides, to step aside meekly for the likes of Doan Etheridge was completely unthinkable. "'I suppose I'll have to do something about that,' he said slowly. Catching Jamie's expression, he forced a smile. "'Don't worry. I'll steal her back in a civilized manner.' "'Yeah, well, good luck. I'll warn you, though. He's not the drip he used to be. I'll keep that in mind.' Johnny slid his hand idly along the smooth metal of the car. Familiarity all around him. And yet, somehow, it was all different, too. Perhaps, his combat instincts whispered, it would be wiser to stay at home until he knew more about the situation here. Jamie seemed to sense the indecision. You still going out? Johnny pursed his lips. Yeah, I think I'll take a quick look around. Opening the door, he slid in and started the engine. Don't wait up, he added as he drove off. After all, he told himself firmly, he had not fought troughs for three years to come home and hide from his own people. Nevertheless, the trip through Cedar Lake felt more like a reconnaissance mission than the victorious homecoming he had once envisioned. He covered most of the town, but stayed in the car and didn't wave or call to the people he recognized. He avoided driving by Elise Karn's apartment building completely, and he was home within an hour. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Grandmaster Lois McMaster Bujold for sitting down and chatting with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.